Did your family own a restaurant bit. called Dancing Zorbas? <laughs> X very likely to be in Staten Island, this very restaurant. No, that was in my big fat Greek wedding. Was it? You chauvinist. Yeah. How many movies have you watched? All of them. A lot. Yeah, exactly. I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Tradesplaining, a podcast trying to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life in terms that everyone can understand. On today's episode, we'll talk about the latest on WTO's postponed ministerial conference. Anybody up late on Friday? I was. More sexual trade tension between China and the U.S., the lowdown on ESG, and even in fact what ESG means, as well as how organized labor is trying to capitalize on the post-COVID economic landscape. And as always, we'll have the usual listener feedback, news roundup, and great byplay between me and Artie. Byplay? That's... Byplay, it's a word. This is a PG-rated podcast. Look it up. Anyway, <laughs> without further ado... Well, everyone, welcome to episode 26. You'll be happy to know that that is the atomic number of iron, which if like many listeners you're deficient in, then this episode should be right up your alley, give you a daily dose of it. I wrote that myself. Yeah. Eat a lot of spinach. Anyway. It's got iron in it. Or you could just listen to this podcast, specifically episode 26, which is the atomic number of iron. As uh, folks have, may have been aware of. I'm here all week, folks. Thank you. Anyway, moving on. I know we usually use this segment to go through our listener feedback, and we will get to all of that, we promise, but I want to talk about a different kind of feedback today, and that is Bradley Cooper, who apparently is perfect, or so said my wife last night. So discuss. I hear he's boring. I think he looks pretty, I, I mean, he's not that, you know, whatever. I mean, my hair would look good too if I was rich and famous. If I was paid to have good hair, I would have good hair. Yeah, I think his eyes are not that color. I, I mean, heard. one thing is you do have good hair. Thank you. Yeah. I, I've heard he has contacts though. They're not really that it's deep not shade his real of hair. Blue. He looks like a character from Dune he's with bald. those blue eyes. He's actually bald. He is. Yeah. Anyway, uh, if my wife is listening, Bradley Cooper's not perfect. He's not perfect. I wouldn't say he's perfect. He's really, really good though. When, I mean, it's just he's good. You're he's supposed kind of, to be on no, my side. You're okay. supposed to be on my side. No, he's good. Like, I, you're good. I thought we were a team. We're all good. I thought we were a team. No, we're good. Yeah, now you're just, you sound like a Facebook comms person. <laughs> we're good. <laughs> we're all good. We're good. We're, we're good. good. You're good. We're, we're good. good. Everybody's good. So we... <laughs> Actually, I did get some actual feedback, Artie. Thank you, you did? for giving me that opening. <laughs> and this does seem to be clustering a little bit. We do get this feedback a lot, which is... I like listening because uh, I find it kind of funny and it's easy to listen to and I don't have to pay that much attention. They don't they don't often say your insights on trade are are amazing. Well, they would if they could hear us talking about that, but they can't because they're too busy belly laughing with the belly aching laugh. We are belly whatever inducing. But anyway, Bradley Cooper is neither here nor there. We are digressing. I am digressing. So let's talk about something that we did find quite interesting, and that is the music that our listeners are listening to. So we're actually able to look at the demographics of our listeners, Yeah. and Spotify also gives us what they listen to. Which is frightening chilling, and exciting all at the same time. Yeah. You're going to tell us, Artie, but I think our listeners should be ready to put themselves in one of these categories. Yeah, this, this is like a Rorschach test for millennials. Yeah. Like the music you listen to on Spotify tells you who you are, tells us who our listeners are. And it's pretty much everybody. Fired up. So number one on this list, shocker, Adele. Adele. So that's uh, everybody. That's every, not me, but yeah. Six. Uh, the know. Lumineers. God help us. Yeah. What do you, uh, I, what's I don't know. The demographic there? Nordic people. Avocado uh, I don't know. Yeah. People who love avocado toast and Instagram yoga. Instagram types. Uh, this one hurt a little bit. Ed Sheeran. 
is in the top five. Is it? It's 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 the women. Gin, the ginger 30? prince himself. It? So the, I guess we've got the women listenership. This one was also. This, can, is it? Could you show up on here if you hate listen to that band? <laughs> no, I don't think they get down. To the hate listening? No, this is not Reddit. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This one was actually a pleasant surprise. Angel, the Belgian singer, uh, recently put out a song with Dulupa. She's in the top five. That's all Michelle. Probably me also because I love Angel. Uh, This one is definitely me. And the last but not least, definitely not least, ABBA. ABBA is all of our Nordic guests. (laughs) (laughs) Because (laughs) every single person we've interviewed is Nordic. (laughs) There's been a lot of them. Yeah, I think that's probably the the people who, who at Maersk who listened to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Plus Artie. No, no, I'm definitely Angel and Abba. I don't know what the other stuff. John Mayer was on this list until recently. Yeah, I love a good love song. Honestly, um, he does kind of melt my heart. Your podcast is my wonderland. <laughs> that's not even John Mayer, is it? That is John is Mayer. It? Your body is a wonderland. Yeah. But this podcast is a wonderland. So I think we want listeners to reflect and think about if they're Angel, Adele, Abba, and um, God maybe help write to us at trade.splaining at, at gmail.com. Gmail. And maybe tell us why they're in that category, and maybe they regret it. Maybe they want to be in a different category. And, and what is the link? So how did you get, can you draw a straight line from Ed Sheeran slash Adele to Tradesplaining? I'd be interested to know. And I want to know if I was Ed Sheeran and Tradesplaining, could I be suddenly Angel and Tradesplaining? The answer is just listen and subscribe, folks. Yes, exactly. Download today's episode. (laughs) And if you haven't done so already. (laughs) Well, then, let's just jump right into this episode's news roundup. We're going to start off with MC12, so the WTO Ministerial Conference, which was scheduled to start this week. That faint noise you heard, unfortunately, last week was the collective groaning of diplomats in Geneva when it was announced that MC12 would be postponed to the developing COVID situation with the new COVID variant. We had hoped to come to you with this episode with a rundown of deliverables coming out of the conference, but we'll now just have to fill this five-minute time slot with stuff that Rob has to say. First of all, anybody who was going to work from home all week because of the security arrangements and the fact that buses are diverted, come to work. Oh, they have to. No, but seriously, I think we, we had heard very optimistic noises just before the conference. Just to be clear, this is a big moment for WTO to try to show some results in negotiating new DG, new orientation, new everything. And they're looking at some big issues, fishery subsidies, trade and health, all sorts of other things that are, that are being discussed. So there was a kind of, yeah, I would say a, a positivity that was coming. And there, there was a feeling like maybe they could actually sign some stuff while they were here, some good statements okay these are not agreements but statements on things like plastics things like environment that you mentioned last week so it's a bit disappointing on friday night they voted we're we're not going to hold it there's changes in variants there's travel restrictions whole delegations were not allowed to come from places like east africa so Mm. uh, maybe we get it i don't know what you think i kind of get why they had to do it but it's slightly disappointing because it felt like we were moving towards signing stuff Hmm. on the positive front i think the conference itself was postponed which was a bummer the negotiation did announce that they were still going to continue discussions on fishery subsidies, which was the thing that they were hoping to, to take away. And people I've talked to involved with the negotiations have said that actually something tangible is actually close and not just fluff. So we're hoping that uh, this comes out sooner or later. And it's, I think it's a good sign that they are continuing to work despite the fact that these ministers are not here to shake hands. And I think what's perhaps maybe one last point, which is really important, is I also heard very good noises about the new DG and Gozi. We talked about when she came in, this was a hu- huge, huge pressure for her to have a result. And uh, what I understood was it's a complicated thing. It's very difficult to get this right. And in general, they feel like she's done well. 
and mm. uh, she's she's brought members closer to consensus. So I I feel like Geneva has 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 kind of scored a, a moderate positive here. And like you said last time, there's massive imbalances between developing countries, developed countries, and uh, massive defensive issues for places like the United States and Europe, and offensive issues for places like India, South Africa, and uh, developing countries. How to somehow bring these all together? That's the power of an organization like WTO, but also the challenge. So many were hoping that MC12 could be used as a way to ease the growing tension between China and the U.S., particularly on the trade front. Now, unfortunately, as we said, it's been canceled. It also comes at a bad time as the U.S. has just recently announced that uh, they've added around a dozen companies to its trade blacklist. They've also said that some of these companies have supported the modernization of China's uh, army. So they're using a national security defense to explain the move. U.S. officials called this part of an effort to prevent emerging U.S. technologies on domestic level from being used for quantum computing uh, and other things that would support China's military. It did say that several entities from China and Pakistan also were added to this list uh, for contributing to Pakistan's nuclear activities uh, and ballistic missile program. I just think it's another example of this policy shift which started under the Trump administration, but which is continuing today, which was maybe, I don't think everybody saw this coming or continuing as long as it has. And that is using trade as a vehicle for achieving national security goals or tr- trade policy. No, I agree. Also, it's, it's using trade national security as an escape route for anything you want to do. So you're pissed off at China. You throw a bunch of companies into a national security exception. Some of them fit, for sure. Some of them probably fit. But also, everything blends into everything else. I think that's one of the biggest threats to, to WTO is that if everything's national security, including mercantilist policies or I don't like your Huawei 5G thing you just put on top of the roof of my building, and that actually could happen in your building. Samsung is better. <laughs> then we call it a national security issue. So I don't think it's 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 true that every time we feel like there's a step forward. You remember last time you were talking about how U.S. and China had had a kind of an agreement on reducing carbon around mm-hmm. the COP26, that it's another thumb in the eye. So let's see. We, we hope it's two steps forward, one step back, not one step forward, two steps back. In the, Is there a difference? <laughs> yeah. Like, you're not good at math, I know, but... Uh, <laughs> Let's see. I think I, I feel like it's I feel like there was good energy around this. So let's see. But the, the U.S. and China continue to come up with ways to put bumps in the road. Anyway, speaking of energy, <laughs> uh, ESG is also in the news. That's also something we'll be talking about with Christina T in a short while. And the question is, is ESG proving profitable? In some respects, ESG is proving profitable for companies now. But the question is, at what cost? So evidence shows that companies who have made specific net zero related pledges trade significantly higher on stock exchanges to those who haven't. For example, 90% of the companies in the S&P 500 publishing corporate social responsibility reports is up from only around 20% in 2011. So it's a it's a significant, significant increase. And then tech companies are generally thought, which this is on the flip side, tech companies are generally thought to be the safest ESG bet, but they make up a disproportionate share of most ESG portfolios. However, they come with indirect emission risk of their own. For example, Bitcoin mining comes at the cost of huge energy consumption. There's also negative implications in the electric car industry. So their need for cobalt has direct consequences on, on mining in, for example, the Congo. And then it also raises questions. So, so ESG is environmental, social governance. So this is kind of how our company is doing apart from just financial basically. And I think what we what we see is that in general, the data is indicating that companies do well in ESG are doing well also financially, and markets are moving towards them. It's a it's a nice narrative. We like it. 
Sounds but, cool. Sounds cool. But also, this is going to be heavily weighted by, as you say, tech companies, Facebook, Amazon, Google, whatever, look to be doing well in this because they're not mining in that sense. They're not, they don't have big carbon producing car factories and so on. So I think it's, I think the numbers are difficult to interpret. I also think that we don't know yet really what's behind all this. And that's what we'll talk about with, with Christina T and especially in the social area. And you and I have talked about gig economy, gig economy jobs suck. They're not great. They're, they're not great. They're not great, right? So if gig economies are sucking, then why why are all these tech companies weighted so heavily uh, and so positively when it comes to environmental, social, and here's the S, and governance? They seem to be such great companies, and yet they're paying people $3 an hour to ride an electric bike in the snow. I- <laughs> that's, that's actually a real case you from paint, outside here, you, right? You painted a, a really wonderful picture. I'm thinking of Christmas in New York. It's beginning to look a lot <laughs> like exactly. Christmas. I want to deliver my turkey on the, yeah. the 25th at the my, 8 p.m. My fried turkey. Yeah, yeah. Deep fried. Deep fried, excuse me. I, I think on a more serious front in their defense, sort of, I think this shift to, quote unquote, environmentally conscious type of products, let's say Tesla in this case, what seems like an incredibly uh, quick shift that happened almost all at the same time to electric cars or hybrid vehicles almost all at once, you're seeing companies try to keep pace with market demand. So consumers are, are, are asking for these types of products and better products. And there, so there's a demand for cobalt, which makes up these electric car batteries. So that leads to issues with, with mining that, that have been written about quite a bit. So I think there's an issue there. And I think it's just a matter of how long it takes for these companies' supply chains to respond accordingly. Right. On the second point, I think for me that's interesting is that we're seeing a lot of companies vertically integrate. So Apple is like the 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 big it's always the business case. So as Apple has basically the best supply chain in the world. So they get products made in China, they ship them out all over the world, they're designed in the US, etc. And you're seeing them buy up more and more of, of the source materials for their goods. So Tesla has talked about buying their own cobalt farms. So I think if we if that eventually does come to fruition, I think we'll, we'll probably see a shift in how, for example, the mining is done, done in a more environmentally conscious way, in a, in a way that takes into account local labor uh, rights and international labor rights as well. I, my question is just how long will that take? Because I think then if that is the case, then a company like Tesla is way more accountable to its shareholders, to the public as well, if we know that they're owning the mines that are producing these these car batteries, right? Right now, it's, it's, a, it's a disjointed supply chain. And I think it's super interesting when we talk to Christina later, she'll say companies, one of the things they can do in social right away is treat the people working for them better. So if every miner is working for Apple, we would expect them to treat them better. They should have ping pong tables and hammocks. Free, free coffee? Free coffee. Another thing we don't talk about often enough is uh, COVID. Its effect on the economy and supply chains. We don't talk about that nearly enough. And the other thing we don't talk about is farming, your old job. (laughs) (laughs) So back in the U.S., there was uh, the first union strike against uh, John Deere Company in 35 years. It ended last week with production of tractors and other farm equipment having slowed quite a bit during that period, which happens to have been at the same time that companies are taking in their orders for next year. It also comes at the same time that uh, farmers are flush with cash from rising commodity prices, so a side effect of inflation and proof that not everybody's doing so bad. And so at the same time that there was this pressure on, on companies like John Deere to produce more and more 
because of these supply chain constraints and then increased demand, labor decided, hey, now's a good time for us to renegotiate our pay. So it worked out well for them in the end. However, to pay for the cost of this new contract, so it runs around six years, many expect that John Deere will raise prices and increase production from its plants. Another negative for consumers is that because it's a tight market and John Deere owns such a big share of it, it gives them the ability to charge even higher prices, at least in the short term, to recover some of these labor expenses. I think it's interesting because labor income hasn't gone up in 40 years or so, at least in the U.S., and my sense is that this is all just happening at the same time, which is why we're seeing, partly why we're seeing this this huge spike in, in inflation and, and workers are having more negotiating power vis-a-vis companies. I don't know what you think. No, agreed. I think it's interesting. We see supply chains tight, production's tight. This is, in this case, farm equipment where it's difficult to import a tractor. So people are looking to John Deere for their tractors. So labor said, this is our chance. So let's have it. Let's have a go. This is exactly what unions do. They find there's leverage. They they use it. They uh, stop production. It got tighter. The company agreed. They got uh, wage increases, and those are going to be transferred to to consumers of tractors. And substitutes can't be found in the short term. So I, I think it's an interesting byproduct of COVID and supply chain issues that labor has a bit more power. And we've heard for the first time real wages have gone up, as you said, since the 70s. So back when you were just starting out, this is not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually had my lemonade stand going in the 70s. That's cute. Um, <laughs> and uh, probably really haven't made it the same kind of margin since. <laughs> But um, have you seen the price of a lemon? <laughs> so I think we're, we're, we're actually seeing what organized labor can do in this situation. And let's see what happens. Now, is it does it mean John Deere is suddenly going to automate their factories or find ways to use fewer employees? Or are they going to hit more competition? That's kind of what we have to be looking out for, because somehow labor has not had the upper hand for the past couple of decades. So probably in the short term, no. But in the medium to long term, I think it's 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 not a, a stretch to say that you could see them being forced into making these types of decisions quicker, right? Anyway, it's an interesting topic. I know farming is near and dear to your heart. You are from Illinois, I remember, right? Thanks. I know you're from Manhattan, so that's great. That's that's not that's not a critique. Nice, you could say from. It's like me saying. You're I know from, for you that would be a critique. Like from, you wouldn't want to be from there. You're from Toronto, right? I think it's called Toronto if you're actually from there. Well, I'm not, so I definitely don't. <laughs> I'm not from Illinois. I'm actually from some place that has at least rolling hills. It's not that flat. Ah, right, right, right. I thought it was the same thing. Yeah, no, I know. And I know you're from Long Island, so that's a really nice place. It's very long. Different island. For the past 20 years, Christina Tuzenis has worked in advocacy, human rights reporting, monitoring and evaluating, as well as in policy making and negotiating at international level. Christina created the International Law Unit at the IOM, the International Organization for Migration, my old job, and served as the head of unit from 2011 to 2012. After IOM, she founded a boutique advisory firm, we're going to consider doing that, applying that experience to the private sector. Today, she currently advises wealth managers, advisors, and investors on social sustainability and governance issues. Prior to her appointment at IOM HQ, Christina worked for the IOM Regional Office for the Mediterranean Region where they practice the Mediterranean diet. Hashtag keto. Christina has also taught post and undergraduate courses in international law at several universities, and she's currently head of the Geneva branch of Women in Sustainable Finance. Wisp. Something which can't be my old job. (laughs) That's definitely not your old job, your current job, or any of your future jobs. For obvious reasons. Well, Christina, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? 
How did you end up in corporate governance after a career working with displaced persons? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I think that ever since I was little, I had this like completely ridiculous notion that I wanted to, I don't know, fight for justice and make the world a better place. And I mean, in my little, in my little tiny world when I was four, you know, I wanted people to have enough food and silly things like that. So be an Avenger. And then I loved arguing. So when I was Going up, I was thinking, okay, the law has to be my field because I love arguing and I love winning when I argue. And then I went to law school and I also always knew I didn't want to stay in Denmark because I have international background. So I also didn't want to be bogged down in one jurisdiction. And then I started, yeah, so I studied everything related to human rights, international humanitarian law, what have you, and then slowly made my way towards um, towards IOM, IOM as head of international migration law. And then last year, I sort of decided that I needed something new. So why don't you just decide to do something completely new during a pandemic, right? I mean, it's the reasonable mm -hmm. thing yeah. to do. So I was thinking also that there's a lot of focus on the environment, but a lot less on what is good governance apart from let's count how many women we have on a board. And so, so what do we mean when we talk about ESG, so environmental social governance? So what does that mean in practice? What I've sort of observed is that it means different things to different people, but it's almost as if it's become the concept in its own right that has been completely disconnected from either of the things that those three letters actually stand for. So it's become scoring, waiting, but based on nobody really knows what. And sometimes you even get this feeling that people speak about it as if it's like something that can come and attack them. Like, if we don't do it well, then ESG will come after us. I'm like, no, ESG is not going to come after you. Just as the, the former, what was it, sustainability have you what have you in, in Blackrock said that ESG is actually dangerous because it's taking focus away from the right thing. But ESG stands for environment social governance. It's how you apply it that is either good or bad, right? And then there's another thing that I think that's sort of gotten it into trouble, so to speak, and that is this has become a scoring. And it's been more about how does any impact on either of these elements, and, and the G usually is just not even considered, potentially negative affect the company, which hopefully then is turning into, okay, let's think about the impact we as a company have of, on these elements so that we avoid that negative reflection back on us. But it's been very inwards looking instead of thinking, okay, so what is it that we can actually do to have not only a net zero, but a net positive impact? So on that, do you think, so we've seen and the numbers bear out that in the, at least in the last 10 years, that companies who have at least made a concerted effort to at least saying that they're they're moving towards uh, adopting these types of standards they've done better financially speaking their share prices have done better than those who haven't or those in let's say uh, fossil fuel industries and things like this however do you think that you know we can rely on companies to do that on their own or financial institutions for this in this case or do you think that regulation is needed i think regulation is needed i think that so on the positive side i think that it shows that really very very few companies or investors or asset managers or what have you these days just thinking okay we don't care they know that publicly they can't say that and that's the first step Greta is absolutely right, both on the environment and on the social issues, that it's not enough and we need to move faster. But what's interesting, I think, from a regulatory perspective, I mean, I'm particularly sort of focusing and, and tuned into what's happening in the EU. And I think what you can see is that there's been quite a lot created 
on the environmental side. And that was necessary because 10 years ago, nobody gave a shit about the environment, right? So they had to sort of like say, okay, so what do you measure? How do we measure it? What is it? And now the social side is catching up. And for somebody who's ha who has an international public law background, what's interesting is to see that nothing is being reinvented here. What's happening is that the states are realizing that companies and investors are a class of actors that need specific legislation for, for the state themselves to live up to their human rights obligations and labor law obligations. But what, once again, Christina, if we're talking about companies and how companies behave, and if we talk about their behavior vis-a-vis -vis social issues, what should they really be thinking about? What should, what should they do better? I think the first thing that they can do, I won't say easily, but which they can control is how they treat people who actually work directly for them. Right. So that means if you have your operations, your direct operations somewhere that's not necessarily in a country that's particularly well regulated, for instance. And it's completely fair to outsource your labor to somewhere that's cheaper. But then you need to still pay living wages. You need to still think about social security, health insurance and, and access to health. And these. So there's small. I think some of the, the things companies don't necessarily think about are the smaller things they can do in those situations. For instance, if you have your operation or your, let's say your, your production in a country with little access to healthcare, well, you can make a deal with with a local healthcare provider, a local healthcare facilitator that actually comes and gives checks to the people who work for you and their families. And all of a sudden you made an amazing difference, not globally, not on country level, but just for the people who actually work for you. And then the second step is to actually have control and use your leverage with your supply chain. And the same thing goes for investors, particularly, I think, asset owners, because asset managers have one raison d'etre. They need to have assets under management, right? They're not there to be the moral safeguard of something. But if the asset owner starts saying, look, I only want you to invest in a way that actually promotes the respect for labor rights, promotes the respect for children's rights and all the rest. So what I wanted to ask is I see two things here. So it's very easy, in my opinion, for an asset manager to say, hey, we're going to stop. We're going to divest from Exxon or a clothing manufacturer who's using child labor in Bangladesh. That's easy for me, right? So then they're going to say, we're going to put our money. And many ESG funds tend to be overweighted to tech companies nowadays. So that's where the, this money tends to go. But is anybody really then going to tell Apple, actually, I don't want to buy Apple, or I want you as an asset manager to divest from tech companies like Apple or Facebook? If you're taking the example of uh, Xinjiang province, yeah. where they've been many accusations of forced labor throughout throughout the region, throughout Western China. Are companies or asset managers really going to say, actually, okay, we'll divest from Apple? I mean, where are they going to put their money then if it seems like tech companies are all that's left? Yeah, and it's also, I think that's one of the big problems with exclusion and divesting instead of engaging. So first of all, everybody seems to think that as long as you invest in tech, you're fine. I never got that. I mean, as you just mentioned, there's lots of things around production that is just, that's really problematic. And then you have these companies that who either have massive exclusion lists, which makes it really difficult difficult for them to actually invest and make money. But then also the moment they find an issue, they think that they they just save themselves by being clean by divesting, right? Whereas they might actually just harm the people and the environment in that situation much more instead of if they just pull out and put some and somebody will come somebody will come in who have no scruples, who is is based somewhere where there is no regulation. So I work quite a lot with how do you actually engage? And it, it's a more difficult 
discourse. And I think it's very difficult right now because in the asset managers, in the firm, you have people who are really competent on handling money. They're really competent on all things financial, but you don't have many people who have human rights background. And you need to have a discourse around a rights-based approach to justify that you stay in, because you need to be able to set up goals that are not just today we're today we found a problem tomorrow we're going to be fine the world doesn't work like that so if you find a situation of exploitation and that can be of minorities it can be simply of people who are poor it can be of children the issue is how do you then put up goals that say what is it that we can do from today to tomorrow from today to tomorrow we can start paying a living wage right but then what can we do in six months and 12 months to address more systematic issues? I had somebody who uh, was working in, in an area where there is women don't really have access to education. And they wanted to have a local, a local hires. And they had as a KPI that they had women in 50% women in senior management positions in three years. I was just like shooting yourself in the foot because you won't be able to find qualified women there because they haven't had that education. What you need, what you need to look at is non-discrimination in hiring at lower levels. And then how do you offset this long-term discrimination in your vocational training, in your career development? And that's what you start measuring. And for them, this was like an eye opener because they, they realized that they couldn't do what they actually thought was the best thing. But they were like, okay, if we can go slower, actually, we have an entire story around this. And I think that that's also it. You need to be able to put us to, to, to build a story around instead of just saying, oh, no, I'm fine. I pulled out and now these poor kids are on the street or in the armed rebel groups. But mm. hey, I have nothing to do with it. So let me ask you another one. Do you think, how do I put this? So people are really interested in this thing. They want people to be paid, for instance, a living wage. If I drink my coffee, I want them to get a living wage. And when I ask around, so I even ask like small roasters and so on around, they don't really have good data on that. But they're, you're right, they're showing me pictures, they're, they're saying good things. So do you think people are really taking it seriously? Do you think so, some of these companies are taking it seriously? Or are they just telling stories? I think I think that's sort of like two camps. I think that those who are taking it seriously, but don't necessarily know where to start, but are trying. And then there are those who are taking it seriously, don't know where to start and therefore feel blocked. You know, they're just like, I mean, I think sometimes, you know, the idea of perfection becomes the enemy of good. They don't, they don't, they can't, they don't have the building blocks. So they're like, okay, we, we're afraid if we start talking seriously about this, we're going to be bombarded by bad press or bad, bad NGO or NGOs telling us we're bad because we actually did our due diligence, but then we found a problem and we don't know how to solve it. And I think education around these issues is super important. And, you know, cross fertilization of, of, of professional competence also, so that you actually, we actually start speaking together, all of us. I mean, I know nothing about finance, but if you have an investment committee who wants to actually make good investment decisions, sustainable investment decisions, then they need to have somebody who knows something about waste management, somebody who knows something about, I don't know, clean water, so that it's really become more of an ordinary decision. And then I think you have those who are just jumping on this wagon because it's a moneymaker. And I actually see that it's problematic but it's also a good sign because those are people who have a nose for money. And if they think that this is where the money, I would hope that slowly, you know, as things progress, 
the people who are genuine for the money are going to be sort of like, you know, punished because they're punished business-wise because they, they just don't give the right advice and that will then... But at the same time, it's a sign, right? Everybody's doing ESG these days. It, it must be a sign that this is where we're going. So that's actually a perfect segue into the next question, the, the last question we wanted to ask, and that is obviously companies are making more of a concerted effort talking about ESG at, at a very... At the, at the very basic level, they're, they're at least talking about it much more communicating these the things that we, quote unquote, want to hear. But how do you see this unfolding in the future? I mean, do you really think that companies will, will do more than just sort of the bare minimum that's needed? Because at the end of the day, the returns may be better for companies who are communicating this. What the data is not bear out yet is whether or not these companies who are actually doing the work are, are doing better financially speaking. So do you how, how do you see this this, this playing out? I think it will because, you know, as I mentioned before, I think people who vote for those who make the rules are going to push this in, in a direction that goes towards this. So politicians want votes, right? My only worry is that I'm not entirely sure that it's going fast enough. And, you know, that's why I'm with Greta on this. The blah, blah is in the right direction, but for how long can we do blah, blah? So, but at the same time, you know what, two, three years ago, I don't think I would have actually had the conversations that I have with people today from the financial sector. They would just have been, yeah, you're a weird human rights person, blah. Now they're just like, you're a weird human rights person, but okay, I'll listen to you and then we'll figure out whether or not I want to do something with you. Fantastic. So now, of course, we get to the important part, which is the lightning round. So you're living in Geneva and we talked to a lot of expats. When you look back at Denmark, what do you, what did you learn about it? when you moved away what what did you what you know what what did you see more clearly from abroad than you that you didn't see when you were there well you need to think about okay so i'm here now but before i came here i was 10 years in italy and everybody actually thinks i'm more italian than that danish and my private life is basically conducted in italian so there's a reason but i i feel i i love danes who moved away and got like a broader perspective of the world but it's a little bit insular and self-satisfied. Well, Copenhagen does have the best restaurant in the world. We literally and think... So I also have to say, I haven't, I literally have not been, I have not set foot on Danish soil for 15 years. So You lost your taste for Kraftwerk. <laughs> we literally, sense. Artie and I literally think Denmark has the solution for everything. Mm -hmm. They have an amazing social system. They have, I mean, I, I was, I was really truly lucky to grow up there. I mean, I, I, my family did not come from money at all, quite the contrary. And I got an amazing education because it, it was free, you know, and I was also health. I was always healthy. I had free good doctors. I mean, it's, it's an amazing system. I just, I, I just, I, I, yeah, I don't, I, I cannot really say something because I don't have any legitimacy in, since I haven't been there you know, so long. You know what else you had in Denmark? A bike. So now tell I us. I did have a bike. Yes. Have you ever had your bike stolen? And if so. I did. I, I was pretty, I mean, it's a lot, it's a long time ago. I think, I think I was in high school and I had it stolen, but everybody knew in, I, I grew up in a pretty small town and everybody who stole knew who I was for some inexplicable reason. And I guess it was some of the younger people who were not entirely aware that that bike belonged to me. So, well, two days after my bike was at my home. And did, 
I think we need to ask a follow-up question here. Have you ever stolen a bike? I have not, actually. I have not. Nope. Have you ever told somebody to steal a bike on your behalf? I might have sort of said that I... Do they have the Fifth Amendment in Denmark? I don't know. (laughs) Do they have the Fifth Amendment in Denmark? Because now's a good time to use it. I think we do have a whole other episode. Well, from one controversial topic to another, what is your favorite kebab place in Geneva and does it end with Alamir? Parfait de Beirut. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm team Parfait de Beirut. Case closed. Okay. Case closed, she's, exactly. She's biased. And how can you tell them apart when it's 3 a.m.? Now, see, that's a very good question. Because <laughs> they're right next door to each other. They're both yellow. This is. It's like animal instinct. You go where the kebab is best, no matter what your condition. All right, we're going to liberate you here, Christina. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great fun. So then, let's start off this episode's This Week in Local News segment, the You Wouldn't Believe This Was True, unless you lived in Geneva or anywhere else. So we have a new lockdowns. Sadly, COVID is coming back to Geneva. And so they've asked us to wear masks in places of, of business, such as stores, grocery stores, restaurants, any any uh, workplace. Now, the one exception that they've made, and I think you're, you were aware of this, is nightclubs. Yeah, okay. because, you know. What could go wrong? No, I think people exercise good judgment in nightclubs. Especially... Unlike like hardware stores or grocery stores. I, I, I'm sensing a tinge of sarcasm in your voice, but I'm going to go with it. There was another thing about the UK running out of liquor. Is that true? That can't be right. No, it's a warning. It's a warning. You know, we've been talking about supply chains, blah, blah, blah. People think it's a joke. Can't get a bike. Can't get furniture. Ha, ha. Oh, your bike's late? Ha, ha. Oh, Rob's, Rob's Swedish furniture is late? Ha, ha, ha. Now there's something. A warning letter has been sent by the UK Wine and Spirit Association to the UK Transport Secretary. Yes, that's a real thing. Both of those are real things. They're real things. And they've said there's an urgent issue for businesses. They don't have enough truck drivers. And it's possible there will be shortages of spirits, wine, and beer for the holidays. They've asked for an urgent uh, action by the UK transport minister to mitigate the impact of driver shortage before the Christmas period. I think if they don't reverse Brexit after this, then nothing will. <laughs> so I'm asking, what will what will the effect be on the holiday if there's a shortage of booze? Like, Can you imagine how many fights there will be at Christmas how do you if nobody's it? drunk? How do you ration Yeah, it? fighting, grandpa fighting over uh, <laughs> the ale. Do you give more to people that need it more? And how do you judge who needs it more? How do you give the ration? I, got, I have an idea. An ESG scorecard. This is it. If you're performing well, you shouldn't get it. Yeah. So people will just perform worse. Will holiday parties be better or worse? Who are we to judge, Rob? I mean, to UK holiday parties I've been to, there was never a shortage. Like uh, Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park said, life uh, finds a way. <laughs> <laughs> Bathtub gin. Uh, ba- ba- basement beer brewing. This could be a Hold mess. On. I know you're going to yell at me, but I got another one. Go. Kevin Costner, Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. What are we building? A bathtub. <laughs> so those of us who are who are UK citizens, like myself, we are sending out a plea for drivers, please. Drivers from Europe, please come back to the UK. Drive trucks. One could we say. We need the wine. We need this, the spirits to be immediately distributed. One could say, like the Sting song, you're sending out an SOS. <laughs> Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 26, brought to you by a healthy dose of iron. Hashtag leg day. We'd like to thank our guest, Christina T, for talking to us about all things ESG. And, of course, why Peroni is better than Carlsberg. Probably better. 
and Carl. <laughs> and of course, there's another episode waiting to talk about Christina's gangster past. Yeah, in the future. Stay tuned. Uh, we also want to thank Michelle for helping in producing this episode as always. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very, very soon. We've got a special Christmas bonus episode planned for all our listeners, so please stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and really anywhere else you get your podcasts. And also, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You know my line here. They do help. And we know you have the time. If you can listen to two guys like us talk for 40 minutes, you can write a review. You can also follow us on Twitter, if you can't write that review, at Tradesplaining, or on Instagram at trade.splaining, or email us your questions, comments, slash diatribes, the old-fashioned way, at trade.splaining at gmail.com. Unfortunately, we no longer accept carrier pigeon for mail. And also, actually, it's important to point out that this episode, in our feedback, you should also let us know, are you a Ed Sheeran listener, Adele, ABBA, or a John Mayer listener? I like those mutineers. Lumineers. Ah, Lumineers. They're very good. They light up my Spotify music playlist because they're the Lumineers. Get it? Yeah. Lumen. It's a dad joke. And remember, folks, listen responsibly.